Well, if you know the backstory of that of that hymn, uh, it's pretty perfect for the message that I'm preaching today. I didn't ask Caleb to do that one in particular, but um, that hymn, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, which actually has a different title, but that's how everybody knows it. There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. It was by William Cowper, who was... By many, uh, many regard him as the greatest poet in all of the English language up to that point. That was in the 1800s. William Wordsworth, for example, said that William Cowper was the best poet. That's a pretty good praise. William Cowper struggled with anxiety, with panic attacks. He was a broken man that God used in fantastic fashion. And that's the theme that we're going to see today, and that's the theme that we saw uh, last chapter as well. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 29. Um, God is pleased. A holy and perfect, flawless God is pleased to work through broken and deeply flawed people. And I'm glad that he is, because that's the only kind of people that can be found, <laughs> whether you realize it or not. <laughs> Those that are flawed and broken. Let's get there. So last time I preached out of Genesis, we actually covered the entirety of chapter 28, and we're going to pick up chapter 29 today. 28 was pretty small, 22 verses is all, but there were some very important theological points in it. Uh, this chapter is a bit lengthier, 35 verses. It's about average. It's not too too big, too too long. And we're going to be introduced today to some new characters in this unfolding drama. And it really is a drama. In fact, it's the ultimate drama, you could argue. It's the careful and slowly unfolding drama of man's wickedness, brutalness, selfishness, and depravity. And we'll see that on full display today. And against that dark background, we see the unfolding drama the twin thread of the scriptures, the unfolding drama of God's goodness, grace, and mercy toward that wretched humanity through Jesus Christ. Man's misuse and abuse of God's perfect creation and God's undeterred rescue plan for sinful humanity. That's the twin themes that we'll see intertwined. That's really the, the themes that are intertwined in all of scripture. It's at once both tragic and triumphal. It's the ultimate of all high drama. And today we'll be introduced to some new and intriguing characters in this plot line. Characters like Laban and Rachel and Leah. And we're going to find out that if Jacob has a bachelor's degree in being deceptive and manipulative, Laban's got the masters. He is the one who is used to being the schemer. He's used to being able to plot and scheme and get his way that way. <clears throat> and he's going to now be introduced to somebody who's the master at it. And it's going to change Jacob forever, and that's a great thing. That's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. Please remember, sometimes we forget in this storyline, we think of Jacob as being like this 20 or 30-year-old on this journey. And a lot of times when we're, you know, little pictures that are in your kid's Bible, I had one of those, it was an illustrated Bible, you know, when I was a kid. Had all the different pictures of the different scenes. And so that in my mind, that kind of colors the story to me, you know, when I'm reading it. So in my mind, I'm seeing Jacob as this, you know, 20-year-old guy who's out looking for a bride. We have to remember, he's 77 at this point. Now, he is still very fit and strong, obviously, okay? He's, he's, the lifespan of people in this time was longer than average, the lifespan that we have today. But he wasn't just a, a, a whippersnapper. And the reason I'm saying that is because... If you have a character trait that you have ingrained for a few years, it's tough to break. If you have a character trait that you've ingrained for 77 years, you're probably not going to break it overnight. Okay? And that's what we're going to see with Jacob. If you follow this, if you follow this plot line, we're going to see God working on this issue for 20 years. And we're going to see God taking Jacob the deceiver and making him a man of integrity. By the end of his time, this, this school of hard knocks that he's about to go into, we're going to see Jacob come out the other side and say, I took care of your sheep, and if one of them died, it was on me. I did things the right way. And the, the reason is because sometimes, 
Sometimes the best way for God to break some habit of sin in you is to let you get a good belly full of it. Let you see it in somebody else and then you hate it. Strange how that works, isn't it? We see it in us. Well, you know, we've got good reason. That's how our mind works, right? But when we see it in someone else, and especially when we see someone else abuse us with that same thing, then all of a sudden we don't like it so well. And listen, there's no sin in your life that you'll ever break until you hate it. The reason any sin ever has any power in your life is because, whether you want to admit it or not, at some level, you love it. And little by little, the great thing about Christ, I shouldn't say the great thing about Christ coming into your life, one of the great things about Christ coming into your life is, Little by little, what will happen is you will start to get a real distaste for that. God will give you a hatred for that sin. And eventually, he'll give you enough of a hatred to overcome that sin. And that's actually the process of sanctification. I said it last time. um, I think it was John Newton that wrote these words, and I could be wrong. One of you pastors probably have to correct me later. But he said, "I'm, I'm not the man I should be. I'm not even the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not the man that I once was. That's the, that's, that's the process of sanctification. I can say that today. I'm not the man I, w- I wish I were. I'm not the man I hope to be one day. But by God's grace, I'm also not the man that I once was. Amen? And that's what's going to happen to Jacob. We're going to see the same thing in Jacob's life. But in the middle of this chapter is an absolutely heart-wrenching story. It is gut-wrenching. It is a story that highlights the wickedness and depravity of man. How much people will use other people to get their own way. Even people that they should love and care for. A story that highlights how humans will abuse and use each other. But it also highlights how God sees, notices, and loves the unlovely and what we would consider the unlovable. In fact, that's the title. I titled the message today, The Lord of the Unlovely. He is the Lord of the Unlovely. He's not ashamed to be called their God. Do you feel like nobody cares? You feel like you don't matter? You feel unloved and unlovely and maybe unlovable? Then I have good news for you today, friend. This chapter of Scripture has something to speak to you. So let's pray and... We'll get down to business. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you'd show us great things from your word today. Lord, I ask you'd use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage, to edify, to build up your people through the truth of your word. Let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. May all that is said and done today, Lord, bring honor and glory to you, and only to you. Lord, we know that you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask. Amen. Amen. So let's start with a quick rundown of what we covered last time. Remember chapter 28? Jacob is having to run for his life because Esau is ready to kill him over what Esau sees as a stolen blessing. This, and the irony in all of that situation is just thick. And I want to I tease some of that out because I think there's parts of that you might not have thought of before. In Esau's mind, Jacob stole his blessing. Okay, remember that. Because we're going to see this psychological projection. We're going to see that Esau is actually going to be blaming Jacob for exactly what Esau has done and will do. Esau is going to call Jacob the thief. But Esau is really the thief. Even if Esau thought that he was supposed to get the double portion, there still should have been a third left over then for Jacob, right? Does Jacob ever get that? No. Esau ever give that to Jacob? You ever send it to him? Send him a caravan? Here's what you were owed? No. No, Esau is a thief. Quite literally. You want to get down to brass tacks, Esau was really the one that stole the blessing. Not Jacob. By the way, Jacob was promised it before he was born. 
Jacob had nothing he needed to steal. Now, he acted deceptively, don't get me wrong. And I'm not saying it wasn't sinful for him to do that. Obviously, he acted deceptively. He deceived, I mean, with a big plot, deceived his own father, his own ailing father who couldn't even see well. Obviously, that's sinful. But also remember, it was his mom that set him up to it. He didn't want to do it. His mom tells him, hey, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll have this elaborate plot. I'll make this food. We'll put these, the, the skins on you. We're going we're gonna to trick dad into giving you the blessing. And he goes, whoa, I don't want to do that. Because then I'm going to seem to be a deceiver. Remember that? His mom finally gets him talked into it. He goes along with it, knowing he shouldn't. But he does go along with it. And then look what happens. He loses everything because of it. And I'm sure when, when Jacob was on that journey, he was thinking that. It was going through his head over and over and over. Just like you. I'm sure you've had a time in your life where you've done something like that. You've gone against your... You knew, I really shouldn't do this. But you know what? It'll, it'll probably be okay. I'll probably get away with it. And you know what happened? You didn't get away with it. And it caused a mess. And it caused a lot of brokenness. And it caused a lot of trial in your life. And then you get to thinking, I can't believe I've died. I've, I've lost everything. I, mean, I, can't, I can't fix this. Now, now I'm in a mess that I can't fix. And that's what's going on with Jacob. Jacob is out. Remember, he's driven away from his home with nothing. The guy that's just been promised everything has nothing. And Esau, the guy who's promised nothing, will eventually have everything. When, when, when Jacob leaves, he doesn't even have a camel or a horse. There's no caravan. He doesn't have servants. I'm sure as he got out there, he's thinking, I knew I shouldn't have done that. And now, look, it's cost me everything. What do I do now? And at the lowest point in his life, when he's the most broken, when he, he feels like there's nothing he can do, guess who shows up? God. God shows up. And what does he say? He doesn't show up the way we would show up. He doesn't show up the way probably I would show up, right? Because I would have been the one showing up like, what do you think now, moron? Great job. Right? Oh, oh so encouraging. Instead, God shows up like the good father that he is. It's okay. I'm still here. I'm with you. I've got nothing. I got nothing but a staff. I don't even have a pillow. I don't even have extra clothes to roll up as a pillow. I've got to use a rock as a pillow. I'm still here. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. Remember, he's not married. I think it's very interesting that God shows up in the middle of the mess that Jacob has made himself. And says, I still love you. My plan has not changed. My plan for your life has never changed. I'm still here. I'm still with you. Keep walking. Remember that Esau would eventually take over all of Isaac's wealth. Jacob will have nothing from Isaac. And he'll get his way. Basically, Esau's M.O. is by bullying. Okay, I don't know if you've kind of caught that yet. But he's, Esau is a violent man. And it's obvious he's a violent man when his own father is literally trembling to tell him, I uh, blessed your brother. There's never a time a father should ever be in that kind of fear of his own son. That says something about the character of his son. He gets his way through, basically through fear and intimidation, which is what we'll see when Jacob comes back. Esau sends out, he comes out with 400 armed men. And I think he does that because when Jacob comes back in a few chapters, in Esau's mind, Esau knows he's a thief. And he's thinking, well, Jacob's probably coming to get what's his. And I'm going to let him know, you ain't getting it. He thinks, I'm going to serve him. I'm not doing it. He comes out with 400 armed men, and what's Jacob say? Hey, here I am. I love you. 
Did you get the gifts I sent? He doesn't care. Jacob does not care that he's been robbed. Why? Because he wanted God. He doesn't care about the stuff. He cares about having God as he journeys through life. And guess what the irony is? When he gets God, he gets everything else. God restores him. Do you know God is in the business of restoration? He is in the business of restoration. Have you gone through brokenness, trial, deep sorrow, where your soul is crushed? Well, the good news is God is in the, in the business of restoration. His plan, that didn't surprise him. Your sin did not surprise him, which to me is very comforting. <laughs> Because I'm telling you, I can have, I, t- I, I tell Reagan this all the time. I, said, I have days where if it can be done wrong, I did it that way. You know what I'm saying? Just you feel like you just screwed everything up from the time you started till the time you went to bed. It's like, I just need a mulligan on this day. The great thing is, God's plan for your life, He's factored in your own stupidity, okay? Your own sinfulness. His plan has not changed. He's in the business of restoration. He still loves you. He's still with you. He's still walking it out with you. So Esau is a carnal heathen bully. We see him literally crying about how he won't get anything. Jacob's such a dirty, rotten thief. And then we see Esau do exactly that. Be a dirty, rotten thief and make sure Jacob doesn't get anything. So it's actually Esau who proves to be the thief. It's like a bad case of psychological projection. Like he could work in Washington these days, right? These guys, hey, we've got this Inflation Reduction Act, which will increase inflation on you. You know, like, say one thing and do exactly the opposite. Like, that's the M.O. Esau would have fit in with that. That's his way. Esau has been promised nothing, but will end up with everything. Meanwhile, Jacob's promised everything ends up empty-handed. The irony is thick. Jacob is going to leave. He's not going to see his the mother that he loves so much, he's never going to see her again alive. They want him to leave for a few days because, hey, just go stay with my family until everything cools down. It's going to be 20 years until he returns. He didn't have a caravan or bodyguards or anything like that. He's even leaving the land that he was promised, right? He's leaving it all. It looks like his future has been lost, but everything is not as it seems. His future has not been lost. God is with him. He's still walking and working it out. Your future's not been lost either, friend. I I screwed this up. You don't even understand my sin, the depth of my own idiocy. I've screwed this up so much. Your future has not been lost. Your future was never in your hands, and that's the good part. If it were in your hands, it would be lost. But it's not. There is one that is there walking with you. That he's working the pieces. He's moving the chess pieces. Even when you don't understand it. When you can't see it. When you can't feel it. When you can't perceive it. God is there. Why? Why is he there? Why is he there when, you, when you've screwed up so much? Because he's given his word. He is faithful. He loves you and he's decided to act. And he's decided to be your God. And he's your God as much when you fail as when you succeed. He's still your God. I am still as much the father of my children when they screw up as when they do what they're supposed to. He's a good father and he's that same way. And that's exactly what's going on with Jacob in this chapter. He's fleeing for his life, but he's fleeing with God. Jacob flees for his life, and Esau eventually ends up taking over the family business, just like Isaac and Esau both wanted. Esau doesn't just take the two-thirds. He thinks he's entitled. He takes everything. Esau will take everything. He'll get everything except the blessing of God. And so Jacob is now on the journey across almost 500 miles of wilderness, roughly 450 miles, how far he had to travel. You ever walked 450 miles? guarantee you I have not walked 450 miles. I, would get, I get tired driving that far. Okay? I'm serious. This guy walked it. 
450 miles, alone and on foot. And he's got to be replaying that whole scenario in his mind. He's got to be full of regret, shame. In one sense, though, it's a mess of his own. It's like the Frankenstein complex. You ever heard of that? Are you, are you familiar with the story of Frankenstein, right? The, the, uh, the mad scientist who's terrorized by a monster of his own making. Like, a lot of times, that's kind of what happens with us in life, right? I've got this, you know, this thing blows up, and it's really of my own making. That's what happened with Abraham. And that's what's going on with Jacob. But when he has absolutely no one else, God shows up. The high king of all the universe is happy to dwell with the lowly and humble. Psalm 138.6 says, though the Lord is high, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. He's not ashamed to be called their God. He's not ashamed to be called the God of the poor, of the broken, of the lowly. God meets Jacob in the middle of the mess he's made. And he doesn't scold him about his actions or his lack of integrity. He tells him not to fear. He tells him, I'm still with you. I'm watching over you. I'll be there. When Jacob wakes up, he says, how awesome is this place? Remember, he's got a little bit of oil with him. He's got nothing else to put on this altar, to make an altar out of. So he takes the stone pillow, which tells something about his destitution. And he sets that up and pours oil on it and says, this is the house of God. We call it Bethel. Really, there should be like a space in there. Beth, El. Beth means house. El is short for Elohim or God. This is the house of God. Beth, El. And he'll come back to this over and over in his life. He makes a vow there that God will be his God. And part of that vow is that he's going to give God a a tenth of everything he acquires. And that brings us up to chapter 29. So let's start there. Let's get there. Chapter 29, let's... Let's start our way through this. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. He looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep laying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. So Jacob finally arrives here at the well of Haran. The distance he covered was roughly 450 miles, like I told you. And therefore, it probably took him... I would say roughly 15 days, if you, if you calculate it out, the scripture doesn't tell us. If he, if he covered, sorry, if he covered 30 miles a day, it had taken him at least 15 days. What's crazy is if you, if you take the numbers of where he was at at that time to Bethel, do you know how many miles he covered the first day? 50. Walking. Which means he left early. It also means he was still in real good shape. He was still a strong, vibrant, virile, if you will, man of that day. 50 miles the first night. That gives you an idea of what kind of pace he kept. It also tells you something about his physical health, strong, healthy. But I do want you to know this is not the same well. We would think it's the same well, the well of Haran, the same well that Abraham sent the servant to. Remember that? Not the same well. Uh, this is actually some distance from the town itself. It's in the pasture grounds away from the town. And on the mouth of this well was a large stone, which indicates to us that the water obviously was precious. My guess is there were probably troughs set up around that well so that the um, livestock could be watered easily. And so what happens is this stone is just, it's too big. It's too big to be put back by one person. You might, you know, it's kind of like anything else. You kind of, you might be able to kind of push it off a little bit. One person, Jacob does, but it's going to be, you're not going to be able to get it back with one guy. And so what they would do, the custom of that time at that place was they'd wait for everybody to bring their sheep out. And then everybody would work together to get this big stone off of there. They would all water their flocks. Then they would work together to get this stone back on the top, cover the well. Right, which keeps the water from getting soiled. That's why you have a, a, a well cover. I don't know if you've thought about that before. You don't have to worry about that because you have chlorinated water. Right? So if some, you know, bugs, if some bacteria gets into the water, big deal. If, if, in other words, if the, if the birds are flying over and dropping droppings into the water supply, you know, you have a way of that being taken care of, right? You, most of you, probably have city water, which means that the city basically takes the water, they put chlorine in it, they kill everything in it, 
They put it in the pipes. They pump it to your house. You don't have to worry about getting sick from the water. In that day and age, you definitely would have to worry about getting sick from the water. You don't want that well open so that all kinds of nastiness can get down into the water. You don't want manure getting down into the water. Trust me when I say this. If you have an open well and it's possible for cattle or sheep or whatever to get manure into it, they will. Okay? I have found something out about cattle. Wherever you don't want them to be and you don't want them to poop, they will. Okay? It's kind of like weeds. Right? If you don't want it growing in your garden, it will grow just fine. The, the day you decide, hey, I'm, I think I'm going to cultivate this, it becomes, it, it takes all its strength. Oh, I, can't, I can't even stand up on my own. I need fertilizer. You, you know, this thing grew out here for 10 years. I never even touched it. And it was fine. And the you know, year I decide I want it, now it's not. That, you don't want the well open to being able to be, you know, getting nasty. So you're going to take the, this huge stone off and put it back on. That's what they do. And here's Jacob. You're going to see Jacob's arrogance. Oh, my goodness. Jacob becomes, he's the new guy in town that knows it all. Have you ever seen that guy? Right? He's probably from California. Just kidding. It's just, just a joke. It's a joke. Don't get offended if you're from California. But he's the new guy in town, but he'll tell you all about how it should be. Hey, y'all people out here, y'all don't do things right. I guess y'all don't know how it's supposed to be done. Let me tell you. And they're like, well, partner, we have a different way of doing things around here. Do you want to do it that way? Knock yourself out. But this is how we do it. We ain't changing for you. So that gives you an idea of, you know, Jacob at that time. He's got some growing to do. Verse 3, when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep. And then put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. So Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. Remember, there's no, there's no maps, there's no GPS on his phone. Like he doesn't, he doesn't know where he's going. He knows the general direction and he heads off that way. And the only way he can know, hey, if I'm at the right town, because he's never seen this town before is to ask people, hey, where y'all from? Where, where is this place that I'm at? And they tell him. And he's excited to hear it. I would be too. Where do you come from? They're from Haran. He says, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? Yeah, we know him. By, by the way, you'll notice Jacob calls uh, Laban the son of Nahor. Was he actually the physical son of Nahor? No, he was actually the grandson. That, that's very common in Scripture. That's not just common in Scripture. That's common today. But I have students in my class that will tell me, hey, so-and-so is my cousin. You're like, oh, really? They're your cousin? Well, they're not actually my cousin, but they're like part of our family, so we just call each other cousins. I do the same thing. I have cousins if they're – I call people my nephew, but they're really like my second cousin or third cousin, but they're younger than me, so I call them my nephew. Not really my actual nephew. Does that make sense? People do that a lot in all cultures, and it's true in the Scriptures as well. Uh, Jesus was called the son of David. Was he actually the physical son of David? No, he's many generations after David. Not, not just Jesus calling himself the son of David. Remember um, blind Bartimaeus in uh, Mark 10, 48? Right? Jesus is walking past, and, and he's saying, here I am, Jesus, heal me. And the crowd's like, hey, stay, you're, you're being too loud. You're being too rambunctious. And he calls out even all the louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. He wasn't actually David's son. But it does say something about his uh, family lineage. Matthew 21, triumphal entry, right? Same thing. Crowds are hollering at, hey, uh, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying Hosanna to the son of David, it says in Matthew 21. Anyway, so we see that that kind of latitude commonly in Scripture with names. Verse 6, he said to them, is it well with him? Is it well with Laban? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he says... How interesting. Uh, she is. She's on the way, right? Uh, behold, it's still high day. It's not time for livestock to be gathered together. Hey, water your sheep and go pasture them. Remember why he's on this journey? Why did his parents send him on this journey? What did they say to him? Don't get a wife from here in Canaan. Go get one from Laban. He comes to the well. And he sees... Here's this pretty girl with all these sheep, and gosh, that's Laban's daughter. 
Hey, guys, uh, uh, get, get your sheep watered and get out of here. <gasps> right? He's got an impression to make. I think in his mind, he's thinking something back. I'm sure he would have heard the stories. He would have heard the stories about Abraham. The stories of, hey, sending out his servant to find a, a wife, and it's the first young lady that comes to the well. I'm sure that's on his mind. Here comes this young lady to the well with all these sheep, and she's a pretty girl. Well, hey, fellas, beat it. What do the guys say back? Yeah, hey, we, we don't know you, pal. We ain't leaving. Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together, right? Verse 7. Water the sheep and then go take them out to the pasture. Go feed them. But they answered back and said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And then they have rolled the stone away from the well's mouth, and then we water the sheep. We ain't going anywhere, pal. Which makes sense. You don't know this guy. You don't know what his intentions are. And if you're a guy with any kind of integrity in that day and age, you're not going to just leave, scatter, and, hey, there's this, here's this stranger, this probably, you know, larger guy who wants to have a moment of um, seclusion with the young lady that's coming. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. I'm guessing Jacob's real motive here is he wants to meet with Rachel without the presence of the shepherds. But it would have been improper, and the local shepherds know that, and they refuse to go away. Good for them. And they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth by himself, notice. Hey, fellas, I'll get this, don't worry. I see the young ladies here. You need water for your sheep. Ah! How about now? He's making an impression. If you teach high school kids like uh, me and Justin do, you see this from time to time. It's fun. It's sad because I can remember. I, I, I've been that guy. Yeah. We all have. Trying to impress the lady. So he does. He rolls the stone away all on his lonesome, all by himself, right? Hey, let me help you water these sheep. Trying to make a good impression. And succeeding, obviously. He's succeeding in making a good impression. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Now listen, this wasn't a romantic kiss. It was not a kiss on the lips, right? This would have been a kiss on the forehead or a kiss on the chest. It was very common in that culture. That's how you greeted each other. <coughs> Please don't greet me that way. I'm not from that culture. I'll not take it as kindly. Jacob told Rachel, this is verse 12, that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to the house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. That's an interesting, that evokes a, a word picture, doesn't it? Remember back to Genesis, the beginning of the book, the creation of Adam and Eve. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So Laban said to him, surely you're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You're my bone and flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Now, obviously, as he's staying with him for a month, he's making a hand of himself. He's still trying to make a good impression. Good for him. Laban said to Jacob, this is verse 15, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me then what your wages should be. Made a good impression. Now Laban wants to know, what's your payment going to be? Wouldn't you love that if your boss came to you and said, name your price? It's basically what he just did. Name your price. What, what am I going to pay you? I would have fun with that. I'm not going to lie. Uh, although I probably wouldn't have this kind of fun with it. Because this, this is still a big request. Hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'll serve you for your daughter. That's, that's a big price. Why would he say that? Remember, he's got nothing. What can he give for a dowry? Got a rock with some oil on it. Back there a ways. Like, what are you going to give, right? 
Nothing. He's got nothing. So he's literally saying, I will become an indentured servant for the hand of your younger daughter in marriage. Now, listen, if you're like me, though, if you're like one of these guys, if any of y'all that have daughters, you ever had a young man say, hey, I'll serve you for seven years for your daughter. If they're a really good hand, you could get a lot of good work out of that. You know, you got a guy over the barrel on that deal. Yeah, man, sure. And I think that's exactly what happens with Laban. Remember, Laban, he's a good businessman. Nobody's pulling wool over Laban's eyes. He knows this is a good deal. This guy's big, strong, and now he is properly motivated. I've got a good deal with this. And so what does Laban say? Hey, better for me to give, him, give her to you than somebody else, which is, he's not wrong. Laban had two daughters. This is verse 16. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. 17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And I've said this before. That has nothing to do with her eyesight. It's not saying she needed glasses. Remember, in this day and time, a woman, when she went out in public, was basically covered head to toe. Okay? She would have had, she would have had cloth on her head covering her hair. She'd keep all the, especially if you were a shepherdess, you gotta keep all the muck and the dirt and stuff out of you. You got long hair. You don't wanna to have to be trying to pick all the stuff out of it at the end of the day. So they're gonna cover that. They would have been covered down to the ankles. And then it would have had a veil or a scarf, you could have maybe called it, up over their, the bottom of their face. So really the only thing you're seeing is the eyes. So when the scripture says she has weak eyes, kids these days would, would probably put it this way, she has a weak eye game. You know, her eyes don't look that great. She really, you know, you're going to need, need some help on this. This is before, like, you know, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. There's no Maybelline. There's no store to get the makeup at, right? Sorry, you, you got what you got. Now, listen, let's also remember this. It's not Leah's fault. It's not. She, that's the face she's born with, man. She can't do anything about it. It's like me. Can't do anything about this face. I can't help that I was born with such a beautiful, incredible face. That's the one I'm cursed to go through life with, right? <laughs> Why y'all laughing? What's wrong about that? <laughs> it's not Leah's fault, okay? And it doesn't say anything about a deficiency in her character. You might say she was homely. Her face wasn't very pretty. It doesn't say that her form or her figure wasn't. She was probably, you know, strong. She's, she's working, obviously, with these sheep. And she's working with... Remember, there's, Laban doesn't have any sons that we know of. And his daughters are doing the work, right? So they're strong. But the scripture says this, verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. That's very, obviously we know what the terms of the agreement are supposed to be. And at this point, it's, it's, it's ironic to me because Jacob, remember, Jacob was the one that just deceived his dad. I mean, how low can you get, right? And Jacob's not on his guard to be deceived by Laban because, well, we're flesh. Laban told me, I'm bone of his bone and flesh of my flesh. We're family. He wouldn't do that to me. Really, Jacob? You wouldn't do that to you? Would you do that to someone else? Would you do that to your own family, Jacob? You know, when the scripture says, as a man sows, that also shall he reap? Oh, there's a law in that. Jacob's going to reap. Laban says, verse 19, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to some other man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the great love that he had for her. What a beautiful passage. What a, I really mean that. Like it, That is so poetic and beautiful. It just seemed like a few days because of how much he loved Rachel. And yet, just wait. 21, so Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I might go into her for my time is completed. I'm not going to ex- exegete what that means, but... My grandma over there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just remember that. That's, yeah. 
Give me my wife. I want to love her. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. It looks like he's going to do just that. And by the way, at a feast like this, what would have been served to drink? It wasn't pop, right? It wasn't Welch's juice, grape juice, like any Baptist church, you know, most good Baptist churches would preach, I guess. They were having grape juice. New wine. Okay. It would have been wine. Okay, we're going to have this big feast, and we're going to, you know, we're going to give uh, Jacob a little bit to drink. And when it's dark, and he can't see very well, and his senses are a little bit dulled, we're going to send the wrong girl in the tent. That's exactly what he does. But in the evening, he took his daughter, this is verse 23, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? The deceiver is getting a master class. Why then have you deceived me? And Laban, like the trickster that he is, like the shrewd businessman, crooked is another good way to say that, says, well, it's not done that way in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So that's true. In a lot of cultures, you, you basically marry your daughters off in order. So complete this week, complete this week for this one. Just, just go along with it, Jacob. Don't, don't, don't get all upset. Okay. Just, just put on a good face for the week. Let, you know, let this thing ride. All right. You, you're just gonna, you're just gonna pretend with Leah for this week. And then after that, I'll give you the girl you really wanted. Complete this week for this one and we'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. I remember the terms to begin with were I'm going to serve you seven years for your younger daughter. And Laban now has gotten 14 years of service, which makes sense. He's got a really good worker. He's got a good helper. And we're going to find out in a chapter or two that when when he came on the scene, God was with him. Remember, God was with him. And because God was with him, since he was staying and working for Laban, Laban was getting the benefit of that. His flocks are, are getting larger. He's becoming rich and wealthy because of how well everything's going under Jacob's hands. And in fact, he will even say later, I know I was blessed because of you. So Laban is trying to figure out, how can I get this guy, seven years is up, how can I get this guy to stick around for seven more years? And Laban is so shrewd, he gets not only seven more years of work, he gets seven more years of, if you will, free service. Seven more years of service for his daughter. But here's the thing that's so crafty and so dark and so wicked in it. He's using his own daughter as a pawn to get more service. It's not Leah's fault. Leah has done nothing but obey. She did what dad told her to do. Leah is very much. I don't, you can tell me all you want that Laban loves Leah. And I'm going to tell you. Well, it doesn't look like it to me. Looks like Laban loves Laban. And he's willing to use Leah to get what Laban wants, which is some more service in the field, some more work that he doesn't have to do. I can sit at home and get fat. You go out and tend after the sheep, pal. And that's exactly what he does. He uses his own daughter to get his way. And if you think people won't use their own children as pawns to get what they want... You have a very naive look on the world. They absolutely will still today. So Jacob did so. He puts on the good faith. He completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah. 
And he served Laban for another seven years. I don't think we can really pin Jacob with wrongdoing for loving Rachel more than Leah. He always did. That was always what he was working for. This is the girl I want. So Leah's dad has put her in a bad situation to start with because he didn't love her like he should have. Now she's in a marriage with a man who doesn't love her like he should. Leah is the one who's getting used here. I mean, you think you have a broken home. That would be a broken home. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, or your version may say hated, same thing. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now look at this progression. I, I have four hours of stuff that I want to preach on this, and I have like four minutes left. You know what I'm saying? When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. The Lord saw. I'm sure Leah felt not just unloved, but unwanted, unneeded, unnecessary. Every man that should be there to love her and protect her and look out for her and see for her best interests couldn't care less about her. And I'm sure there were nights where she's laying down thinking, but who loves me? And here's the great news. God. There is one who sees. There's one who's there when no one else is. There's one who knows the pain and the trouble of your heart, who will walk with you through it. There's one who's the Lord of the unlovely and he's unwilling to leave. He's willing to be there. He's there with Leah. The Lord saw that Leah was unloved. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. It just breaks my heart. She wants so desperately to be loved. Now that I've given him a son, he'll love me. The name Reuben literally means behold, a son. 33, she conceived again and bore another son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon means heard. God has heard. It's a reference to the Lord hearing the cry of Leah's heart. And again, she conceived and bore another son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons now. She wants so desperately to be loved by her husband. No woman should have to want desperately to be loved by her husband. But she does. Therefore, his name is called Levi. Levi literally means attached. Now look at this. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. There's no reference to dad. There's no reference to, the, there's no reference to these men who do not love her. She finally gets it. This time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah. And she ceased bearing. She called his name Judah. The name Judah means praise. There's something beautiful in this name. She finally gets it. I'm not looking for love from there. I'm not looking for love from there. I am not going to be loved by the people of this world. I get it. But I have a God who loves me. And I'll praise him. I'll praise him in the midst of it. She finally understands it isn't about her father loving her. It's not even about her husband loving her. It's about the king of heaven who loves her. And who is working through this brokenness, this mess of a circumstance that she is not responsible for and yet finds herself in all the same. And I would encourage you to let that be your heart's desire as well. You find yourself in brokenness? Well, then don't let it define you. Broken home life? Broken past, failed relationship? Whatever else. Then put your eyes back to the king of heaven where she finally realized that's where my help comes from. My help, my provision, 
All of that doesn't come through my husband. Ultimately, it comes through my God. Lift your eyes to the King of Heaven where your help really comes from. Lift your eyes to the cross. That's where you'll find true love. All of us, the best men, the best men who love Christ, who are following Christ, we are still broken vessels. There's never been a day that I loved my wife the way I should love my wife. There hasn't. I love my wife very much. I adore her very much. But there's never been a day where I've treated her truly the way I should. And the reason is because I have sin and brokenness in me too. But you know what? There's never been a day where God has not loved her the way he should. It's true. Leah found herself in a terrible spot that had nothing to do with her own making. And Leah found that even in that terrible spot where she felt unloved and unwanted and used and betrayed, she could still lift her eyes to the king and he would hear her cry. He is not ashamed to be called her God. And we need to remember that as well. He's not ashamed to be called your God either, church. You can be the poorest. You can be the most broken. You can have nothing to offer. It doesn't matter. He's the king who has it all. He's not ashamed to be called your God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us the truth of your word, who you really are and who we really are. That even at our best, we're really still broken. Even at our best, we are flawed with sin. And that you are just the opposite of that. That you are the, the Lord of the unlovely. You love those who cannot, who will not be loved, who are, if you will, unlovable. That you're not ashamed to be called their God. Thank you, God, for loving me when I'm so unlovable and unlovely. And for loving your people, even when we're unlovely, like a good husband, like a good father, like the good God that you are. I ask that today, Lord, our eyes would be redirected to the cross, that we would see once again clearly who you really are, who we really are, and how that should change our lives. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.